All right, uh, greetings to all of our campuses. We're glad that uh, you all are here. Uh, Let me mention a new teaching series we're starting next week entitled Believe, Experience the Power of Faith. And I'm really excited about this series, which includes Easter. Um, So I encourage you to use the Easter invite cards to invite neighbors or coworkers or friends to one of the services that weekend. That's just in two weeks. Which is amazing. So if you have your Bible or iPad or whatever, turn to Genesis chapter 50. Today we are finishing up this teaching series that we've been doing in the book of Genesis. I'm kind of bummed, actually. I really love this book. Sad it's, it's ending. Um, I'm amazed at how incredibly relevant and helpful and important this book is for us today, even though it was written thousands of years ago. I mean, the the book of Genesis provides a critical foundation for us as we wrestle with the challenging questions of life and of of meaning and and purpose. One of the biggest questions we we all wrestle with relates to the presence of evil, right? I mean, how, how do we maintain our faith in the aftermath of the massacre at Sandy Hook Elementary School where first graders were gunned down at, at point blank range? How do we maintain our faith in the aftermath of mudslides that kill dozens of people or, or an airplane loaded with passengers that disappears? How do we continue on this journey with God in the midst of, of evil and tragedy? Well, the book of Genesis shows us how. It gives us a foundational perspective upon which we can build our lives in the midst of challenges and and difficulties. Today, again, we find ourselves in the final chapter of, of, of this book, and we come to an incredibly significant verse in this chapter. It's found in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. This one verse succinctly helps us process this question of faith in the midst of tragedy and evil. Now, before we read this verse, let me summarize where we are in this story, okay? We've been, we've been focusing for several weeks on the life of Joseph. As a spoiled teenager, Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers, his hate-filled brothers. He serves faith, faithfully as a slave till he's falsely accused of rape and thrown into prison. Years go by, and yet he remains faithful to God. Through a variety of circumstances, God elevates Joseph to second in command in Egypt, and he oversees a major famine relief effort. In the meantime, his brothers and father are starving in Canaan, and so the brothers come to Egypt to buy food, and that precipitates this fascinating process of reconciliation that happens between the brothers and the father Jacob and Joseph. Well, after Jacob dies in chapter 49, we see this huge entourage that accompanies the the family to Canaan to bury Jacob, which is what Jacob made them promise to do. Bury him back in Canaan. Well, when they come back from this journey, the brothers are afraid that now that Jacob is dead, Joseph is going to get revenge. He's been waiting until Jacob dies so he can get revenge. And so they, they concoct this story about how Jacob, before he died, had, had requested that Joseph forgive his brothers. And they throw themselves at Joseph's feet saying, we are your slaves. Now, in response to the brothers, Joseph says something incredibly profound. Look with me at Genesis 50, verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. 
this one verse helps provide a theological framework for us as we wrestle with our faith in the midst of bad things happening, in the midst of difficulties and tragedies. You know, I, kinda, I liken this verse to how a person in Florida might prepare for hurricane season. They don't know for sure that a hurricane is coming, but it might. And so they spend time in the spring seeing that the roof is in good shape and that the foundation is solid. They want to be ready for a hurricane if it comes. And in a, in a similar way, we need to be theologically ready for tragedy if and when it comes. We need to have the foundation of our faith secure so that we can weather that storm when it, hit, when it hits. And this verse in Genesis helps us do just that, gives us this theological framework. So there are two critical uh, theological anchors that we must have in place in order for our faith um, to sustain, be sustained in the midst of tragedy and in hardship. Anchor number one is the utter sinfulness of humanity. The utter sinfulness of humanity. In this verse, Joseph hearkens back to the incident that happened decades earlier, right? When Joseph was a teenager. His brothers were so filled with jealousy and hatred that they actually sold him into slavery. Initially, they were going to kill him, but they decided instead to sell him for 20 pieces of silver. So while he was pleading for his life, pleading for mercy, they callously betrayed him. And then they went home and told their dad about it, and, but they told him that he was killed. So Joseph said here, says here, you intended to harm me. Now, while that translation is accurate, I think it misses the force of what G Joseph is saying. The word he uses is actually the word evil, not just harm. It's evil. It is the same word used over and over again in the book of Genesis to describe humanity's problem, our situation. For instance, look at Genesis 6, verse 5, where God is describing humanity's condition. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Twice in that verse, this very word is used. It means Utter evil, wickedness, self-centeredness. God is saying that this is the condition of, the, of humanity, of the human heart. Every inclination is only evil all the time. See, what Genesis shows us is how Adam and Eve's rebellion in chapter 3 unleashed evil and sin in an incredibly damaging way so that it cuts through the heart of every human being. Sin became part of us as humans. It impacted every facet of our lives and our relationships. And so we see, right after Genesis 3, what happens? Adam blames Eve, right? Um, and, and, and then we see Cain murdering his brother Abel. And then we see the wickedness described in Genesis 6, which moves God to send a flood as judgment against evil. But the evil just continues. I mean, the irony is that this, this evil is evident in those, even in those that are at the center of God's story, right? So Noah, after the flood, gets drunk and sleeps with his daughters. Abraham puts his wife in danger to save his own skin. Isaac was a terrible father, significantly wounding Jacob. Jacob was a deceiver, filled with insecurity, choosing to love one wife and hate 
the other. His kids were an absolute mess. Simeon and Levi murder an entire village. Reuben sleeps with one of his dad's wives. Judah sleeps with his daughter-in-law thinking she was a prostitute. They sell Joseph into slavery. And these are, I guess, the good guys, okay, in the story. These are the people that are at the center of God's story. And then notice how the book of Genesis ends. Look at the last verse. So Joseph died at the age of 110. And after that, they embalmed him. Excuse me, after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. End of the book. Notice the contrast. Genesis 1 started, Genesis 1 and 2 started with life in the garden. Amazing. No death, no disease, no violence, perfect peace and joy and love. And yet Genesis ends with Joseph in a coffin. A vivid reminder of the end result of a sin-infested planet. Death. Sin impacts every facet of life on earth, bringing death and disease and destruction and violence. So in order to weather the storm of tragedies, we must have an understanding of this essential truth. We live on a planet in rebellion against God. Evil is very much a part of us. Tragedies and disease and death all have their origins, not in God, but in evil. Now, why is this important? It's important because sometimes people try and attribute to God things that shouldn't be attributed to him. Things that were never in God's heart or God's design. And then they conclude that God must be a moral monster. If these things happen, he must be a moral monster. So if he exists at all. So so you have people like Richard Dawkins and other new atheists who argue for a godless existence. Dawkins writes that the universe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. That's his conclusion as he looks at the universe. No purpose, no hope, no ability to to even call evil, evil. Life really is just the survival of the fittest. I mean, you can't even say child abuse is wrong in, in his system because there is no moral system. There is no evil, there is no good. It's just survival of the fittest. At least... Dawkins is intellectually honest enough to realize where his position leads. That's exactly where it leads. The the inevitable conclusion of his position is that there is no meaning in life. Now, in contrast to that, the Bible offers us a realistic view of humanity that fits the reality we see all around us, that there there, there is evil all around us and even within us, that sin has permeated our lives and our our planet. Things are not as God intended them to be. So important to understand that. I mean, what happened at, at, at Sandy Hook Elementary School was not a part of God's original design. Tornadoes and plane crashes and and mudslides were not a part of God's original design. We live on a planet that is out of whack, a planet that has been stained by sin. Which leads to the second core anchor that can help us 
face tragedy, and that is the incredible wonders of God. The incredible wonders of God. When Moses initially penned the book of Genesis, he no doubt wanted the people of Israel to clearly understand who this God of theirs is, right? He's, he's writing this right before they're entering into the promised land, so he wants them to know what God, their God, is like. And so we see various aspects of his attributes throughout the book of Genesis. But in the final chapter, Joseph summarizes these attributes in a very powerful way. Again, in this verse, there are three attributes of God that, that Joseph highlights in verse 20. First of all, the goodness of God. The goodness of God. Notice again what Joseph says. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. We have a God who is absolutely good. He is the opposite of evil. There is no evil in him. He is a good God. We see this in the first few pages of this book. He creates everything, and he declares that all of it is good, right? He provides a companion for Adam a beautiful companion for Adam, and he provides this beautiful garden for Adam and Eve to enjoy. Everything in his heart is good towards us. He is loving. He is a loving and good creator. And I know we sing about this attribute of God, and we have sayings, God is good all the time, and all that stuff. You know, we, we sing about it, he's good, but do we really believe it? Do we really believe that his heart is good towards us, that he is good. Joseph is a great example of someone who, even in the face of incredible difficulty, hung on to the truth of God's goodness. Remember, he was in slavery and then prison for 13 years. 13 years. And yet at various times throughout that experience, we saw Joseph looking to God, continuing to trust in the goodness of God. You know, th this, this goodness of God thing, this is one of those pillars that we need firmly established in our hearts before tragedy hits. It's got to be firmly established in our hearts before tragedy hits. Early on in this series in January, when we were just, I was thinking about and planning this Joseph series um, and how to address some of these themes. I called up some friends of mine um, from church here, Marlon and Tammy Towson. Their teenage son, Destin, was killed in a car accident um, a few years ago. And I, I just wanted to hear their story. I wanted to hear how their faith survived that. And so we hung out one evening, and I just asked them questions and was taking notes on what they were saying. And, and I remember at one point, many things they said that were just really, really helpful. And, but I remember at one point they said, when our son died, the truth of God's word is what we stood upon. We had to cling to what we know is absolutely true. We had to cling to what we, what we knew was absolutely true, that God is good. Even if, if the circumstances we're experiencing don't make sense, we, we, we had to cling to God's word where it says that God is good. Thankfully, that truth of God's goodness was rooted in their soul before that tragedy happened. I mean, that, that's not the sort of thing you begin to embrace for the first time when tragedy hits, you know? 
in those moments of, of pain, you don't start to believe God is good. No, instead, you draw from the truth, that, you, that truth that you've built your faith upon earlier. You have to draw from that when tragedy hits. That bedrock belief that God is good, even if circumstances don't seem to indicate that. <clears throat> Genesis declares that God is good from the beginning. He has always existed as a good God who cares for us. So again, how deeply rooted is this truth, that truth in our hearts? How deeply rooted is it? It's so critical. A second attribute of God that Joseph highlights in Genesis 50 verse 20 is the sovereignty of God. From the beginning pages of Genesis, we learn that God is in control. He is creator of all things, including time itself. He is in charge of the universe. There is absolutely nothing that happens that is somehow outside of his influence and authority. He is in control. That's what it means that God is sovereign. But there's a very important facet of this sovereignty thing that Joseph describes here. Because some of you are thinking, well, hold on, this seems like you're, you're um, contradicting what you just were talking about. No, 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 I'm not. Look at verse 20 again. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Now think about what he's saying here. He is not saying, God caused you guys to sell me into slavery. God made you do that. No, he's not saying that. Joseph is saying, you freely chose to harm me. But God was able to orchestrate things so that even your evil intent was ultimately used for his good. This is so important for us to understand. Because a lot of people today, they reject the idea of God's sovereignty because they think God's sovereignty means that God causes every event, that he causes cancer, and he causes tsunamis, and he causes you know, murders to happen. But that is not the perspective of the Bible. <laughs> the Bible does not attribute these things to God. The Bible does not portray God as the cause of evil. Rather, it portrays a God who is able to use the evil that happens even when humans are the ones initiating it. God is somehow able to use that evil to accomplish something good. That's what God's sovereignty means. Joseph's story is an amazing example of this. I mean, think about this. His brothers freely chose to harm him. But God was able to use their evil intent and actions in such a way that Joseph was elevated to second in command in Egypt. And because he was elevated to second in command in Egypt, guess what? The entire nation was saved from famine, including Joseph's own family. Think about that. Joseph had to be sold into slavery in order for his own family to be saved from starving to death. But the choice 
to sell him into slavery was rooted in the free will of the brothers. It was rooted in the evil intent of his brothers. And not only that, I mean, follow the story. Think about that. Joseph then had to be falsely accused of rape in order to be thrown into prison so that when he was in prison, he would meet Pharaoh's chief wine taster who would eventually remember Joseph in prison. All of these evil things, they were evil. All of these evil things had to happen to get Joseph where he needed to be in order to save the nation. But none of those evil things were caused by God. None of them were caused by God. I mean, this is absolutely amazing. And it's so important. It elevates the issue of sovereignty to a whole new level, especially when you combine it with God's goodness. And we must, because God is both. He is good and he is sovereign. We have a God who is able to somehow use tragedies and pain to accomplish a greater purpose, a purpose that is often beyond our understanding or ability to see, which is what makes his, his sovereignty so amazing. I mean, God, excuse me, Joseph didn't know what God was doing when, when he was sold into slavery and when he was falsely accused of rape. He did, Joseph didn't know what God was doing as he waited all those years in prison, but God was orchestrating all these things to accomplish a glorious purpose, the saving of many lives. I mean, this is where our brains begin to blow some circuits, right? Because what's really being asserted in verse 20 and throughout Scripture, what's really being asserted is both the free will of humans and the sovereignty of God. Both. The brothers freely chose to do evil, and they're held accountable for that. And yet God is able to sovereignly accomplish his purposes by using those evil choices for a greater good. You know, so people will ask me, so do you believe in free will or God's sovereignty? Yes. Both of them are true. From a scriptural perspective, both of them are true. At the same time, even if we can't understand how that's possible, this position is sometimes known as compatibilism. If you're interested in that, you can impress your friends with that word, compatibilism. But compatibilism basically means it's, it's this belief that both, even if we can't understand, it's like railroad tracks, we can't understand how these things would ever meet, but they're both true. And Scripture declares they're both true. They're taught throughout Scripture. Let me give another example. There are many, but let me give another example. In Acts chapter 4, where the believers are praying. This is after Jesus has died. He's been crucified. And then he appeared to them, right? For 40, 40 days, he appeared to them. And, and, and then Pentecost happened. So this is after all that, the believers are gathering. They're praying. And notice what they pray. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. 
They did what your power, again, they're praying to God, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Okay, notice. Herod and Pilate and the Pharisees conspired together to kill Jesus. They, they did it. They freely chose to do this. But God had already decided beforehand that this was to happen. The Bible upholds both the sovereignty of God and the free will of humanity at the same time. Now, we may hear this and think, that's impossible. <laughs> that's impossible. It's contradictory or whatever. That's impossible. But the, the only reason it's impossible is because it doesn't make sense to us. But is it possible that God is beyond our comprehension? Is it possible that he is beyond our comprehension? Do we really want to limit God to what our, what our own brains can figure out? The Bible declares that we as humans choose and that we are held accountable for our choices. But the Bible also declares that these choices never thwart the ultimate plan of God. They never thwart the ultimate plan of God. So what this means for us is that no evil, no tragedy can happen to us that is somehow outside of God's loving and good purposes. It's not that he caused the tragedy to happen, but none of them can happen that are outside of his loving and good purposes. The tragedies and evil themselves are all rooted in the fall, right? They're rooted in the reality of sin permeating life on this planet. That's what they're rooted in. But even then, God's purposes are never thwarted. Never thwarted. He is still sovereign. Which leads to a third attribute of God that Joseph highlights in this passage, and that is the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God. Joseph could now see what God was accomplishing in those years of struggle, right? Now Joseph is looking back, and he can see what God is accomplishing. And he could declare the faithfulness of God. Now, now, what's cool is what happens a few verses later. As we near the end of Joseph's life, we read in verse 24. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the land of Canaan. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up from this place. Okay, so notice what Joseph is banking on. God's faithfulness, right? He says, God will surely come to your aid. He, God will keep his promises. At the end of his life, that's what Joseph is saying. Our God is absolutely faithful. He is absolutely faithful. Now, the part of this that we don't like very much is the whole time thing, right? Um, you see, Joseph died, and he was buried, and then the Israelites became more numerous, and, and so that the Egyptians eventually got tired of him and afraid of him maybe a little bit, put him into slavery for 400 years. And finally, God rescued them from slavery, right? 
Moses and all that. And as they were leaving, guess what Moses took with him? The bones of Joseph. Even though Joseph's spirit was already with God, those bones represented God's faithfulness to do what he promises. God is faithful. He will do what he promises to do. But his timing may be different than ours, which is why we need to see afresh that root word contained in the word faithfulness. What's the root word? Faith. Faith. In the midst of the sinfulness of humanity and and, and the incredible wonders of God that are ours, his goodness, his sovereignty, his faithfulness, there is one response that God consistently calls us to embrace. The response of faith. Will we trust God in the midst of life's hardships and difficulties? Will we cling to him when things are not happening the way we had planned or had hoped? Can we trust him then? When our adult child wanders from their faith, when we have a miscarriage again, when we lose our job, when cancer strikes our family. The cross of Christ stands as a permanent reminder that we have a God we can trust in this life and in the next. He took the evil intentions of the religious leaders who freely chose to nail him to a cross and he used that to open for us the gates of heaven. That's a God we can trust. Are are, are we willing to trust him even when tragedy occurs? Are we willing to trust him? He brings resurrection out of things that die, right? Out of circumstances that seem dead. He brings life. Are we willing to trust him even when tragedy occurs? I wanna wanna, um, read the story of a family who attended our church a few years ago. They've since moved to Denver. But their story reminds us of, of the uh, truths that we've just heard about. I wanted to kind of bring this home in a practical way. So here's um, how the mom wrote this. Six years ago, this would have been now like 12 years ago or whatever, but six years ago, our wonderful, comfortable little world came down around us when we were told that our daughter Kelsey had a malignant tumor The next nine months were a blur of surgeries, radiation, MRIs, CT scans, bone scans, and and hospital stays as her doctors raced to save her from cancer. The doctors were not successful, and God did not intervene to save her life. At age 14, Kelsey lost the painful, difficult battle. She went home to be with her Lord, and life as we knew it came to an end. After all, the craziness died down from a difficult hospice time and her funeral. The four of us and our family found ourselves alone, feeling very bleak about the rest of our lives. I had a giant hole in my heart and just wanted to crawl up and die. Each morning, every night, and often during the day, I found myself literally crying out to God, you caused this pain. You left this hole in my heart. You fix it. 
Our anger was palpable and huge. Excruciatingly slowly, God did begin to ease the edges of the pain, and we began to function a bit more normally. Jeff could drive to work again without pulling over to wait out the deluge of tears, and I was able to walk past Kelsey's photograph without breaking down. One day I spent the afternoon with a woman who had been exactly where I was a few years earlier. She understood my feelings exactly, knew I needed to talk about Kelsey and was willing to listen and, and shared how God had begun to restore their family. But the one thing that moved my heart the most was not something she said. She brought with her their young daughter adopted at birth less than a year earlier. And as, as I watched her with this new little life, so in need of care, but abandoned by her biological parents, I was so moved by the idea of adoption that it took up permanent residence in my heart. I tried to brush it off, thinking it was merely my emotions running amok with grief. I told myself it was completely illogical, considering our age and situation in life. I mean, we were, cons you know, we were encroaching on the empty nest. We should be thinking about our first childless cruise, not thinking about adding kids to our family. But no matter what I told myself, the thought prevailed. Eventually, I worked up the courage to share the idea with Jeff and the girls, assuming they would laugh it off and tell me how crazy it was so that I could forget about it. But when I said to them, I keep having this crazy idea that we're supposed to adopt, they all said in unison with grins on their faces, really, can we? Fast forward through the reams of paperwork, years of waiting and weeks of difficult travel. And here we are today, the proud and joyful parents to two little girls from China, Samara and Isla. Their picture is coming up here. There's another daughter that's not in this photo. They are the lights of our family, two brand new people who haven't lived through the heartache and pain the rest of us have. They remind us of what life was like before we lost Kelsey before suffering entered our lives in such a huge way. There will never be a day that goes by when we won't think of her and feel the sadder for our loss. However, as deep as the grief and sadness are, that is also how deep the joy and contentment are. Through the suffering, I have reached a depth of relationship with God that I never knew existed. The pain of losing Kelsey left me with the feeling that there was no reason to go on here on earth. I so wanted God to take me home, to get me out of this ugly, evil mess where we simply survive. But God kept reminding me that he is with me here, that he is holding me, loving me for as long as he wants me to wander this earth. Then he showed us that he wasn't done with us here that we needed to not only finish, finish parenting Caitlin and Nikki, but also to shepherd two more of his beautiful children through this life because they had no other earthly family. What we didn't know when, we'd followed, when we followed his guiding was the great joy these two little people would bring to our lives. They are amazing, brilliant, shining lights given to us to remind us how good life can be and how precious are each of God's children in their own individual way. Obviously, one child can never replace another. The joy of a new family member cannot erase the grief brought on by the loss of the first. 
we know that suffering will always be part of our life here on earth. But we are so thankful that God brought us through our ordeal to a new place in him. We don't know what suffering or blessings still await us as we anticipate that wonderful day when we will join Kelsey and all of our loved ones in heaven. But we do know that God will uphold us through the desert place when the darkness closes in on the road of suffering and will rejoice with us when the sun is shining down on us, when the world is all as it should be. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen. We're going we're gonna to pray together, and I want to invite all of our campus pastors at their locations to come forward now as we respond to God, to God's word in prayer. So let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us. It doesn't answer the why question in terms of why tragedy happens and why this and why that, but it does give us a framework upon which we can build our faith. This framework and understanding the utter sinfulness of humanity, that none of this is your design, none of these tragedies were your design. But sin happened. And when sin happened, evil was unleashed and permeates everything. And we also thank you for this foundational understanding of who you are, that you are good. You are good. You care for us. You want the best for us even when we don't understand what's happening. Your heart is for us. And I want to pray for those, Lord, who have a hard time believing that. They've seen the tragedies. They may be sat in this worship center during funerals of friends. They have, they have experienced tragedy and at times wonder, like we all wonder, are you really good? And so, Holy Spirit, I pray you would take this truth deeper in our hearts that you, Father, truly are good. You are good. That you care for us and you want our good. So we cling to that. Even when it doesn't look like it, we cling to it. And we praise you as well for your sovereignty. <laughs> This amazing, amazing thing that even with the free choices of men and women, our free, our choices that somehow you orchestrate things for your good purposes. That blows our circuits, Lord. We can't even comprehend that, but that's what makes you so cool because we can't figure you out. You're beyond our comprehension and we praise you for this consistent theme in your word that you are sovereign. That you are in control even though you don't cause evil, you are in control. And then we thank you for your faithfulness to us. You are faithful. 
Sometimes your timing doesn't match with ours. Often it doesn't, and we acknowledge that. But we thank you that you're faithful, that you one day are going to make everything right. And there will be no more mourning or crying or pain as, as everything is made new and restored. We so look forward to that day. But until then, we walk by faith. We trust you. We fix our eyes on you. So I want to just pray for that. I want to pray for each person here, for those who are in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of heartache, in the midst of difficulty, and maybe wondering where you are and what you're doing. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would come and you would stir our faith as we rest on and stand on these truths that God is good and sovereign and faithful. Thank you for being that kind of a God. So we open our hearts to you now. As we continue to worship, Lord, we open our hearts to you. And Lord, I want to pray too for the intercessors who are going to be standing along the, to my right and my left there, their availability. I pray for them as people step out of their seats and maybe go to receive prayer during this worship time. I pray you would pour out your spirit, Lord. We need each other. We need to pray and seek you and, and ask for you to intervene. Even on this journey of faith, Lord, we can ask you for breakthroughs. And so I pray for those who are going to just step out and go receive prayer. You would pour out your spirit upon them. Pour out your spirit upon our intercessors as well, Lord. Do amazing things. We love you. We just want to praise you for how awesome you are. So why, why don't we stand as, as we worship the Lord. If you want to sit down at some point, you can. If you want to come up and kneel, you can. If you want to receive prayer, feel free to do that. But Lord, we just ask you to set us free now to worship you. We declare your praise. We declare who you are. Thank you that you are good and sovereign and faithful. We love you, Lord.